Good morning, Lakeshore. We are so glad that you're here. Welcome to Smyrna Campus. Love you guys. Everybody connecting online. We're so glad that you've connected with us that way today. We are in a series uh, on the book of Nehemiah called Rebuilding Five Key Lessons from Nehemiah. Last week, we talked about the necessity of preparation, how we need to get our heart right, get prepared to do whatever God calls us to do and wants us to do in light of this pandemic and trying to rebuild the work of the kingdom and the church the way we need to. We want to do it better than it was before, and we need to get prepared for that. This week, we're talking about the value of participation. Now, I know some of you here were concerned that Pastor Randy, because you are a UT fan, that I might bring up a football game that happened yesterday. And, you know, I'm not like that. I'm a compassionate pastor, and I know some of you are UT fans. And I'm not going to even mention that Georgia beat UT yesterday. And uh, because I know how much it hurts when you lose like 44 to 21. It's, it's bad. And, and so what I don't want to do is make you feel even worse than you already feel about, about getting beat down like that by another team. So... Uh, I'm just going to not even mention it, all right? Just, let's just move on and, and not deal with that. Uh, but it is important for us to focus on uh, what we can learn, these lessons that we can learn from Nehemiah. And when it comes to the value of participation, I know you know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it again, and I want you to just say it out loud, okay? How do you eat an elephant? Very good. A lot of you know this, right? One bite at a time. Now, here's the deal. There is uh, an African elephant that can average up to 13,000 pounds, all right? Can you imagine sitting down to try to eat 13,000 pounds of meat? Now, before you send me any emails, I'm not advocating eating elephants, okay? I'm not doing that. This is just for illustration purposes, all right? So I'm not saying you should go out and kill and eat elephants. What I'm saying is, is that it's a huge undertaking, right? And anytime you have a huge undertaking in front of you, the key is to break it down into smaller steps, smaller units at a time. Because you can't do all of that at once, but if you just take it one bite at a time and you stay with that consistently long enough, then you can accomplish the task. And that's the lesson we're going to learn today from Nehemiah with this great big task they have in front of them of rebuilding the wall around the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you were here last week, you know that Nehemiah felt uh, called of God to take on this task, this vision. He felt like it was a disgrace to uh, God's reputation and God's people that the city of Jerusalem was in such bad shape and, and his people living there were in such bad shape and that the wall was still just torn down and rubble all around. Uh, in fact, it had been 141 years that that wall had been torn down. And now it is put on Nehemiah's heart to do something about it. And last week we learned that he went to the king that he served as cupbearer in the foreign land that he was living in, King Artaxerxes, and he asked for permission to go back and lead in this project of rebuilding the wall. And not only did the king give him permission to go, but he also agreed to give him a lot of help with the project, letters uh, to get him through safely through the countries he would have to travel through, uh, resources like the timber he was going to need and things like that. He made arrangements to get that lined up and military uh, to travel with him, military guards, soldiers to protect him. He did all those things to help Nehemiah. And when Nehemiah got to Jerusalem, before he talked to anybody about rebuilding the wall, he took another step. It says he rode around the wall on horseback And he took inventory of everything. Now, that's important, right? Before you take on a big project, you need to know, what are we really dealing with here? What what is it that that has to be done to accomplish this task? And so before he asked anybody to help, he formulated this plan of how taking these steps would lead to being able to successfully rebuild that wall. Remember, rebuilding the wall around the city was key to restoring the the glory of God in that place. It was key to restoring the the health and safety of the people living there. It was a key step in restoring God's reputation in the world for his people to get this done. And Nehemiah formulated this plan to get it done. But here's the thing about a plan, about eating an elephant, big plan. 
is you have to actually start. You can't just plan. You can't just talk about it. You can't just say, oh, that, that's something that'd be good. Yes, somebody ought to do that. You have to actually start. And in order to start, someone has to step up and set the pace. That's number one on your outline. We're going to look at it today. Someone has to set the pace. We're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 17 this week of Nehemiah chapter 2. If you want to open up your Bibles, uh, if you don't know where Nehemiah is, Psalms is kind of in the middle of the Bible, and then go left from there, a couple of books, and you get to Nehemiah. In chapter 2, beginning of verse 17, after he had uh, formulated this plan in his mind, right, he wrote around, got all the details about the condition of the wall. Then he started talking to the people about the project. Look at verse 17. I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Is he being honest with the people about how bad it is? Yeah. He's not trying to sugarcoat this. He's not trying to say, oh, it's no big deal. Like with the pandemic we're facing right now, right? We've been in it for a while now. And on the front end, we probably thought, well, this, you know, maybe a month, maybe two months. But it's drawn out, hasn't it? It's gone on. And there have been a lot of bad things happen during the pandemic. People have been sick. People have died from complications with it. And, and it's been hard. Businesses have lost a lot of money. Many of them have closed forever. People have lost their livelihoods. We need to be honest about how bad things are with this. It has affected a lot of people in a very negative way. We don't need to sugarcoat that. But as we talked about last week, I believe God has called his people and put the church here for a purpose so that in the middle of bad things, the church can rise up to the occasion and respond the way we need to so that God can work even in the bad times to bring about some really good things that would cause people to glorify his name. So in the face of what we're looking at as a people, individually, corporately as the church, we need to be looking for, all right, God, things are bad, but we know you specialize in turning things around and bringing good from the bad. So how can we respond? How can we be used by you to make the difference you want us to make right now? Okay? So he starts with the truth. It's, it's bad. But then he says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. So he says, okay, it's disgraceful the way things are right now. You know what's been happening? For 141 years, the wall has been torn down. But for 60 of those years, some of the remnants had already returned to Jerusalem. So for over 60 years, you know what they've been doing? Walking around the rubble every day. It had become normal for them. It was like, well, that's the way it is. It's awful, it's bad, so disgraceful the way it looks. The reputation we've got now is really bad, but nobody was doing anything about it. Nobody was stepping up to say, hey, I'll lead the charge. Let's, let's get this taken care of. Nobody was until Nehemiah shows up. And he had to leave a foreign country and a cushy job to come there to do it. And yet he did. See, somebody's got to set the pace. Somebody's got to step up and lead the way. And God knew Nehemiah's heart. He knew he could count on him to be that man who would step up and lead the way for this rebuilding. But Nehemiah understood this big job could not be done just by him deciding to do it. So here, listen to the wording that he used. Let us rebuild the wall. He didn't say, let me be the champion here and rebuild this wall. He said, let us do this together. But in order to bring people together for a project like this, somebody, someone has to set the pace. Someone's got to be visible out front. Someone's got to be willing to pay the price to be the face of the project, this huge project. It says in verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. So immediately he says, I want us to do this, but understand we're not doing this alone and we're not even doing this for our own benefit. We're doing this for God and 
God is with us in this project. His gracious hand, he says, was already on me in this project. Remember when he went to the king, the king responded so well. Artaxerxes gave him all the help that he needed and even a lot of the resources to get started with the job. He says, I want you to see if we come together in this, God's behind it. And when God's behind it, he will grant us success in what he's called us to do. You can count on that. Now, they were living in a terrible situation. It was disgraceful, the conditions of the city and where they were living. But Nehemiah is already casting this vision as a leader who stepped up and said, listen, God wants us to change this, to turn this around. God has the resources we need to make this happen if we could come together and do this. It says, they replied, let us start rebuilding. What phrase did they use? Let us start rebuilding. Because someone stepped up and led the charge, now people are saying, okay, we will join you. We will join in with you. Now that you've reassured us that God's in this, we're going to come together and get this job done. But notice if you just stop there, they replied, let us start rebuilding. And if they had stopped there, what would have happened? Nothing. See, a lot of people talk a good talk and then don't follow through. They don't take the next steps. In churches, it happens the same way. Well, yeah, that's a great idea. The church ought to do something about that. Yeah, the church ought to offer this program. The church ought to have something good for the kids. The church ought to have something good for the seniors. The church ought to do something in the community. The church ought to reach out and help the poor and the homeless. The church ought to do, the church ought to do that. And who's the church? You are. So if the church ought to do that, who are you talking about? You and me. We ought to do that. And if somebody at the church says, yes, we're going to do this. We're going to start this ministry. I'm going to lead it. And, and, and a lot of people say, great idea. Yeah, yeah, great idea. We're all for it. That's terrific. But they don't take the next step. They don't join in. They don't help with the work. That's going to have to be done. It's one thing to say the words. It's another thing to take the action. Look at what it says here. They replied, let us start rebuilding. And the very next phrase is, so they began this good work. <laughs> because a leader stepped up and led and reminded them that this was of God. Then the people who loved God and wanted God, God's reputation to be restored, they were willing to step up and not just say, yeah, this ought to be done, but they actually were willing to do it. But it requires some people to start with who will set the pace, who will step up and be leaders for the project. Here's the thing about stepping up to be a leader. Look at the very next verse, verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? As soon as somebody steps up as a leader for Christ, as a leader for the work of God, immediately Satan wants to bring opposition to what you're trying to do. You can count on it. As soon as you want to do the right thing, Satan will try to bring something to cause you not to follow through. Understand this. He's okay with you talking about it all day long, every day. As long as you don't do anything. As long as you don't make any changes. As long as you don't take any action. You could talk about loving God and talk about loving people all you want. But if you never do anything about it, Satan's fine with that. But as soon as you start trying to put it into action, that's when he throws opposition against you. That's when he takes the action to try to keep you from the follow-through of doing what God wants you to do. Haven't you experienced that if you've ever really tried to do anything good for the kingdom? How, how God, I'm going to start giving more generously to the church. Well, the water heater is going to go out. You know it is, right? Something's going to happen to test whether or not you're sincere about that. You're real. You're actually going to follow through. Satan loves to put those roadblocks there. And in Nehemiah's case, it was these three guys who weren't 
they weren't God's people. They lived in the area. They were probably, according to the, the descriptions here and the titles are given, they're probably government officials in the area that don't believe in Nehemiah's God, don't believe in, in you know, they're not part of the, the, the people that belong to God, yet they are very willing to voice criticism and opposition to what Nehemiah is trying to do. And the church has always faced that throughout all of history. There's always been those who aren't part of the church who want to criticize and tear down the church, who want to tear down God's people and the work of God's people. Now, here in America, we've been really spoiled for a long time as the church. For the most part, our government has been pretty supportive of the church and of the church doing the work of the church in this country. That has not been true for brothers and sisters in Christ and many other parts of the world. Through the history of the church, there has been opposition the whole time. There have been critics. There have been people who ridicule it. There have been people who have physically fought against the church. And in some countries, even today, for the people, brothers and sisters in Christ, that are meeting together to worship God and, and, and offer praise to God, they're actually risking their lives to do it today. And here we are freely assembling in the name of Christ in our country. Now, I'm like you. I can feel the tide turning a little bit in this country. I can begin to feel now, now you probably feel it too, more rising opposition to the church and the church doing the work that God's called the church to do. It's not as welcomed in our culture now as it was not too long ago in my lifetime. There's more opposition to it today than there was before. But it's still nowhere near what many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing in so many other parts of the world. But we've taken it so much for granted, we act like it's the end of the world because we're getting some kickback now, some opposition now that we used to not get. Friends, Christians have been dealing with this forever. It's just that we in our lifetime haven't had too much of it here in America. Now, I'm not saying I, I think it's okay. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we shouldn't act like this is something we should be surprised by. It's not new that, that Christians are facing this anywhere in the world, even here in America. So in the face of opposition, what we have to know is, even knowing that, God still needs some people who will step up and lead and set the pace for his work. And when you are in a lead role, Here's what happens. When you have a lead role, you're going to be more visible. And when you're more visible, you become more of a target for those who want to oppose what you're doing. This just comes with, the, comes with the position. It comes with the, the role of leading. When you're visible, when you're up front, out front, that's the one people see. Those are the ones people can then easily attack and ridicule, and criticize. It comes with leadership. And even not just leading in the church. If you lead in your company, if you have a job where you are seen as someone, as a supervisor or a leader or a manager in your workplace, then whatever happens on that job, they look to you as the person to criticize or complain about or tear down, right? Or ridicule. If you're going to lead for Christ going to lead for his church you have to know that comes with the territory i'm thankful to uh been the lead pastor here for almost 30 years and i can assure you there's never been a time in 30 years where i wasn't being criticized or questioned or complained about by somebody the whole time it's never gone away but when i took the job you know what i knew it comes with the territory when you're up front, when you're a leader, that's part of it. There have also been some great people who have been great encouragers and great support, and I'm so thankful for that. But don't think there won't be the critics, too. They're always going to be there. The pandemic really magnified it. Here's, here's what Barner Research has told us about the pandemic for churches, for lead pastors especially, because you're the upfront person communicating a lot for the church. Okay, No matter what decision you made, about should we go all online or not? When should we go back in the building or should we go back in the building at all yet? 
If we do go back in the building, should we require a mask or not? Should we practice social distancing or not when we go back in the building? Here's what Barner Research said. No matter what decision you made on any of those issues, two-thirds of the people didn't agree with it. Two-thirds wouldn't agree no matter which way you came down on any of those decisions. But you know what had to happen? Somebody had to make the decisions. It goes to the leaders. They have to make the decisions. And I'm so thankful for our elder team and for our staff who spent so much time praying and gathering information and looking at what was working or not working in other places. And I meet with a pastor's group and uh, for over 65 pastors around the country, and we all talked and prayed with each other about how can we lead well through this and get back on track as a church and try to keep people connected. And we just did the best we could with God's help. But you knew every decision you made you were going to be criticized for the whole time by some people no matter what decision it was. We could have decided not to come back in the building yet, and there had been a third that were happy with that. There would have been two-thirds that weren't happy with that. We could have decided, well, we'll come back, but we won't have masks. We won't use masks. Two-thirds would have been mad about that, but a third would have been fine with that, right? No matter what decision you made. Here's what I want you to know. If God is calling you to step up and lead out in the work of the kingdom, don't think it comes with only praise and support, and oh, we're so proud of you, there will always be the critics. You know why? Because Satan is alive and well and working to tear down and destroy the work of the kingdom of God. That's why. He'll use anybody he can, even people within the church that will allow Satan to use them to criticize and tear down and destroy the work of the kingdom. They're there. And some of those people aren't intentionally doing it. They're they just doing what comes natural to them they don't know any better they don't even know they're being used by satan to throw up those roadblocks and hurt the work of the kingdom so leadership carries a price it's not a title it's not a position it's a lifestyle you have to know if you're going to lead for Christ that you're going to face opposition over the next two weeks we'll talk more about the opposition uh, but in Matthew 5 Jesus speaks to this principle that we need to have if we're going to stand up and lead out for Christ. Here's what he says to Christians, those who would follow him. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Listen, in the same way, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The goal is to point people to God, to glorify God with what you're doing. But the price you have to pay to do that is you have to be visible. And when you become visible, you get criticized. It just comes with it. So somebody's got to set the pace. That's one of the key lessons today that we need to see from Nehemiah. If we're going to get this rebuilding done and we're going to rebuild better, it requires some leadership. Willing to set the pace, willing to be up front, willing to be visible. And I'm thankful for our leaders here at Lakeshore. But the second thing we need to see is even though it requires leaders, everybody can contribute to this. Everybody can contribute, even if you're not leading in the process. If everybody was a leader, how much would get done? Not much. We got to have other people too, right? People willing to, to do stuff even when it's not visible. Right now, on every Sunday and all during the week, even though I'm the one up here preaching and teaching and often on the video that goes out and all of that and people see me and connect that with Lakeshore, here's the thing. Behind the scenes, there are so many people serving, working, doing things that make a difference for the kingdom. You see, everybody's not going to be the visible leader, but we also need everybody else to contribute what God wants them to contribute to the rebuilding process. It requires the leaders and the others who come alongside the leaders. Chapter 3 of Nehemiah. I just want to read the first couple of verses. Listen. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachir, son of Amri, built next to them. 
I'm going to stop there after these first two verses for a lot of reasons. One of them is, if I read this whole chapter, first of all, it's kind of boring because it's a whole list of names, right, that, that just built different sections of the wall. The second reason is they're hard to pronounce, and I don't want to spend all day trying to work through all this and pronouncing them all, okay? They're hard names to pronounce. Uh, so a lot of people with a lot of hard names went to work. That's the point, okay? A whole bunch of them went to work. And if you break it down, if you look at all of chapter 3 with the, with the revelation of all these work crews that started working on the wall, there were 42 separate work crews rebuilding this wall around Jerusalem. 42 separate work crews. Now, each one of these work crews had to have some people leading the work in that part of the wall. So not only did you have Nehemiah as the most visible of the leaders, then they broke it down to, all right, sub-leaders under that for 42 different workstations there. You've got leaders leading the rebuilding of that section of the wall. But with every one of those leaders, there was a group that actually went to work under their leadership to build that section of the wall. And Nehemiah was wise with God's help. Most of the sections of the wall being built were sections closest to where the people lived or had their businesses. That's the section they worked on. Now, why is that a big deal? Would it be personal to them to have the wall rebuilt where they live and where they work? Absolutely. It would mean more to them to work on that section of the wall. But they knew the whole thing had to be completed in order for their section to do the job it was supposed to do. So here's what ended up happening. 42 work crews worked side by side by side by side all the way around the city of Jerusalem. They came together, all of them, to get this job done. And we know the rest of the story because it's recorded for us. They did it in an amazingly short time. They rebuilt the whole wall. But the whole time they had opposition. The whole time there were people fighting against them and threatening them. We'll talk more about that. Like I said, over the next two weeks, we'll look more at the opposition. But they were working together to get the job done. 42 separate work crews. There's a principle that has been in the church world for a long time that's not such a good one. It's the 80-20 principle. And it's not quite that here at Lakeshore, but it bears some weight here too. I'm so thankful for all of our volunteer servants here. Remember those 42 work crews, they're all volunteer crews, all of them, to rebuild this wall. 42 crews, all volunteers, rebuilding the wall. None of them are paid construction workers rebuilding this wall. But they all got on board and worked together to get the job done. But here's the problem. They, they, they bust the 80-20 principle in this project. The 80-20 principle is this. In most churches, on average, it varies a little bit, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 20% of the people give 80% of the funds for the work of the church, of the kingdom. That's true, of, generally speaking, of churches across the board in America today. Before the pandemic hit, that's where we were. Now, since the pandemic, I would say the, the percentage is probably even worse of how many people are still there doing what they need to do, working and serving, because so many people dropped out during the pandemic. So many people disconnected, didn't stay involved in the work. Now, think what could happen if the church has done as well as it has with 20% doing 80%. What if we flip that? What if we had 80% of the people involved in getting the job done instead of 20%? Can you imagine the difference that would make in the effectiveness of the work of the church, of the kingdom, and our culture? Think of how much more powerfully visible we could be and, and, and how much more we could do to show the love of God and minister to people's needs if we had a bigger percentage actually committed to the work. You see, there's, there's this idea times in the church that only certain people can really do the work, right? The paid professionals, they're the ones that are supposed to do the work. Pastor Randy and the other staff that gets paid to do stuff, they're the ones that are supposed to be doing the work, and we come to be ministered to by the paid professionals. That's the way the American church has worked, but that's not the church of the New Testament. That's not the church of the Bible. The church in Scripture is every member was a part of the body and each part of the body was supposed to do their part to contribute to the good of the whole. Listen to Ephesians 4, verse 16. 
Speaking of Jesus, it says this, From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament. How does it grow? It says it grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. What is each part supposed to do? Its work. Its part in the work. Everybody is supposed to be contributing to the work of the church of the kingdom of God. Everybody. You're not supposed to come to the church to be served by the paid professionals. You're supposed to come to work alongside them in the work of the kingdom. Each part doing their part of the work. The church would be so much more effective if we could get more people to contribute to the work. There's a principle uh, that a lot of people know may know it from business or other uh, things you've been involved in. You've probably heard the term the synergistic principle, okay? Here's the synergistic principle. It says this, the combination of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. The combination of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Now, it might be a little hard to understand, but I saw one of the best illustrations of this, uh, and I checked it out, and it's a true story, and I've seen it played out at another event that I went to. It was a horse pulling contest up in Canada. Now, they have those here in Tennessee, too, at different uh, festi- festivals and things like that. They have horse pulling and mule pulling contests, right? So that they have one down in Columbia, right, on mule days. They have it take place down there. Here's what happens. They hooked up these horses to these uh, flatbeds that they put weights on to see how much weight the horses can pull. And they have them out on a flat piece of land, and they hook them up to a harness, and they, they have the horses, they say go, and they try to pull to see, and they have to pull it a certain distance past a certain line for it to count. The winning horse in this contest pulled just over 9,000 pounds of weight. That's pretty impressive. The second place horse pulled just barely under 9,000 pounds of weight. They were very close. Now, after the contest was over, they presented their awards, but then some people there decided, let's try this. How much could they pull if we hooked the two horses together? Right? Wouldn't that be interesting? Because you would think 9 plus 9 would be what? 18. Some of you had to think about that. Math is not your thing. It's okay. 9 plus 9, 18. So 9,000 pounds and 9,000 pounds, 18,000 pounds, you think, was what they could pull. But you know what they actually pulled when they hooked them together? Almost 30,000 pounds working in tandem together. That's the synergistic principle. All of us can do more linked up together than we could do individually. All of us. Remember the series I just finished last a couple of weeks ago, Stronger Together? We are literally stronger together than we could ever be individually serving God on our own. That's one reason God gave us the church, the church family, is so that we would have a way to come together to get the big stuff done that God has called us to do as the church. And our thinking has gotten so skewed in the American church that we think, yeah, the church ought to do this and the church ought to do that. And we forget, well, that's us. We are the church. It happens to me too. One of the things that really bugs me because of the way I was raised, as I drive through to come to work here, sometimes I come in the back way there, and the place is just trashed back there all the time. People just throw trash out all the time. You know what my first thought almost always is? Somebody ought to fix that. Somebody ought to do something about that. And then I remember, I'm somebody, right? And you're somebody. If we want somebody to do something about it, what are we saying? We ought to do something about that. If we think it's important, if we think it really matters and somebody really should do something, if we think it's what God would want done, then we should be the people who say, well, let's do it together. Let's let's work together and let's get it done. Instead of sitting around and complaining about how somebody ought to do something about it. Here's the thing we learn about this synergistic principle in Nehemiah's project. Nobody was asked to do everything. It was too big a job. But everybody was asked to do something. Right? Nobody was asked to do everything. Because nobody could do everything. But everybody was asked to do something. And if this person did what they were supposed to do, and that person did what they were supposed to do, and on and on and on, guess what happens? The big thing gets done when all those little parts come into place. The big things get done. 
And God has called us to make disciples of everyone in the world that would accept the call of God on their lives. It's a big job. How are we going to get it done? You do your part. You do your part. You do your part. You do yours. I'll do mine. Some of us are going to be leaders. Some of us are going to be working behind the scenes. But if we all do our parts, we all come together with greater effectiveness than any of us could be just doing our parts separately on our own. We learn that it is something that everybody can contribute to. This rebuilding, this, this rebuilding better is something we can all contribute to. There's a third lesson, though, that I want us to think about before we leave today, and that's this. In Nehemiah's project and in the work of the church today, some people will miss the opportunity that God's giving them. There's a lot of different reasons for it, but some people will miss the opportunity to do what God planned for them to do. There are, some people are afraid to even try. Maybe they've tried things in the past and failed or they've been ridiculed or they've been criticized for it and they decide, you know, I, I can't do it if people are going to criticize me for it. You know, you just you excuse yourself from doing anything or trying anything because you might be criticized again or you might be ridiculed if you try to do it. I won't speak up for Jesus at work anymore because last time I tried that, it wasn't pretty, right? Well, maybe you could learn from what went wrong the last time and do it better this time. But no, sometimes we just excuse ourselves from now on from ever trying to do that again. So some people miss out because they're scared. Maybe they're scared that, uh, that not only would they be criticized, but they're scared that if they try, even if nobody criticizes, they'll fall flat on their face, right? But here's what you need to know is even when we fail at something, if we turn it over to God and we listen to him and learn from him, we can learn some valuable lessons. I've learned as much from my failures big time, maybe probably more than I've ever learned from my successes, haven't you? Right? So even if you try and fail at something, it can be a growing experience for you to be stronger moving forward and better equipped moving forward. We don't need to be afraid. But some people don't do it simply because they're lazy. We got a lot of lazy people in the world. Let's be honest about it. You know the number one selling brand of furniture in America, what it is? Lazy Boy. It's the number one selling brand of furniture in America. Not Attaboy. Lazy Boy. I've got a recliner at the house. Everybody knows that's Papa's seat, right? That's where Papa sits. It swivels, it rocks. And it reclines. Does it get any better than that, guys? Man. And when I, when I get home after a day where I've just kind of been drained, you know, I like to sit down in that seat and I like to just uh, swivel around for a minute and then I like to pull that lever on the side. You know the lever I'm talking about that pops up that little footrest. And you lean back and you rest. Boy, I could just stay there and just doze off, right? I could, but you know what happens sometimes? I get a call or I get a text, right? Because if you're a leader, you're up front. Who do they call, right? Who, who do they go to? Sometimes it's something you've got to respond to right away, and so you've got to get up and go. Sometimes it's something else. Sometimes, you know, my wife, I love her so much. She'll say, I saw something today I want to show you. So she'll want to, you know, show me something. I'm trying to, but I got to look at that. Or maybe there's a ball game on and she doesn't know, you know, that uh, that's the most important thing in the world. So she'll try to tell me something that she wants me to know while the ball game is on and I'm trying to doze off during the game or whatever. Uh, and, and, and so because I need to lead in my home, what do I need to do? I need to respond in the right way, right? You see, lazy is the easy default thing to do. Because serving in the kingdom costs something. It costs time. It costs energy. It can cost money. It could cost the use of your talent. It could cost inconvenience, right? To serve in the kingdom and to serve well. But we can't get the big things done if everybody doesn't contribute to the whole. If we're too lazy to do that, we'll never get the big things done. But here's the worst part. Not only will you not get it done, you'll miss the opportunity to be part of something amazing. You see, to me, that's the saddest part. It's not that you don't do your part, but that you miss out on what God's doing and wanted to do, do through you and let you be a part of. You miss out on it. 
if you stay in the spectator seats instead of getting involved in the game, instead of actually getting involved in the work of the kingdom. There's something about making the sacrifices and being involved and working alongside your brothers and sisters. There's something about that when you get something accomplished that you know God wants you to do. There's something about the feeling that comes with that. The, the reward of that is knowing that God used you to make a real difference, a real impact for eternity. There's no better feeling with that. And a lot of people who say they love Jesus and belong to the church are missing that because they're sitting on the sidelines watching other people do the work of the kingdom. I don't want you to miss it. God doesn't want you to miss it. Look at how he responded to these critics that started in chapter 2, Samballot and, and uh, uh, Tobiah uh, and Geshem. He says in verse 20 that he answered their criticisms by saying this, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. In other words, you're never going to experience what we're going to experience by being God's people and serving God. You're going to miss it completely. You've got no part in it. But it wasn't just those outsiders that he says that to. There's another group he talks about. On in chapter 3 and verse 5, if you look there. It's talking about the sections being built. Here's what it says. The next section, uh, section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Now, Nehemiah doesn't elaborate, but, but I think we can read into this what he was saying. He calls these people that wouldn't get involved in the work, he gives them the title, the, their nobles. All right? So they're big shots among that group of people the nobles, and they wouldn't put their shoulder to the work under their what? Supervisors. <laughs> now, there's a lot of things you can read into that, and we don't want to go too far with it, but, but here's what I think based on my experience as a pastor. Here's what happens sometimes. I've had it happen over and over again as a pastor. People will come to me and say, Pastor Andy, I'm ready to serve. I want to help out at the church. What do you want me to do? And I'll tell them something that I want them to do that we really need done right now. And all of a sudden it's, uh, no, I don't think that's the thing. And what it is sometimes is vanity and pride. They think it's beneath them to do the thing that I'm asking them to do. Because they are, they think in their minds, of higher standing than that, more important than that. They think they ought to be asked to do something else that they had in mind. They wanted to act like they were willing to serve wherever as long as it fit their predetermined idea of what they should be asked to do. Right? Don't ask them to do this low position when they think they should be asked to do what they consider to be this high position that they should have been asked to do. I've used this before, and it's true. It happens all the time. Uh, whether it's at this campus or the Smyrna campus, some of us on staff will be here during the week, and something will happen when there's activities going on or some event about to happen. You know how it happens at home, too. Uh, a toilet will get stopped up or something, right? And you're the only ones here. And the event's going to start just any minute. And there's a plunger there, right? There, there's a plunger to try to use to unstop the toilet. And if you're the ones here and you got to get it done and you don't have time to call the person you might call to come do that for you, what should you do? Pick up the plunger and start trying to plunge the toilet. Right? I've plunged a lot of toilets at Lakeshore over the years. I don't say that to brag. I don't feel like I'm called to do that, right? I don't feel like I'm gifted in particular to do that. But that's the excuse people make. Well, yeah, I was thinking about serving. You know, my gifts are this or my gift is that. So here's what I think you should ask me to do at the church. Right? Here's what I should be doing. Well, maybe in the long run you find something that really fits your gifts well. That's a good thing. That's something you ought to look for. But in the meantime, if you're saying I want to serve however you need me and here's a job that needs to be done, what should you be willing to do? That job that needs to be done right now, whatever it is. I don't know very many people that are just gifted to change diapers in the nursery. I think there are some. That is their gift. But most of the rest of us, that's not our gift. 
But if the diaper needs to be changed and you're working in the nursery that day, what should you do? Do your best to change the diaper, even if you gag the whole time, right? You do your best. You do what needs to be done. We all need to do that. In this chapter 3, you see all these work crews, 42 of them. You know what you don't see? You don't see a bunch of construction workers in the list. You see people who sold perfume. You see people who, who did music. You see people who did a lot of different kinds of jobs. But none of them are listed as construction workers. But what needed to be done right then? They needed to put rocks on top of rocks with mortar and build a wall. And all these people that had other jobs normally were out there doing what? Construction work, building a wall. You see, when you are a servant and you got your heart right, you've prepared your heart like you need to prepare it, then whatever needs to be done for God, that's what you're going to step in and try to help and do. And the more people we have willing to do that, the more great things can be accomplished for the work of the kingdom. Not everybody needs to be the upfront, visible person. We can never get it all done that way. We need those people, but we need the others. We need everybody willing to do whatever needs to be done. They didn't want to come under their supervisors, it says. That's what he's saying. Part of it could have been the pride. I'm not letting those people tell me what to do. We're the ones who ought to be telling them what to do, right? You know people like that. I hope you're not one who at work, no matter what, no matter how it's being done, you're behind the scenes saying, well, if I was in charge, I wouldn't be doing it like that. I'd do this. That's not the way we ought to be doing it. You have those in the church too. Meanwhile, other people are getting the job done while you're sitting back criticizing them. They're doing what needs to be done while you sit back and complain and ridicule and criticize their work. How much more could be done? How much more effective could we be if we got off the sidelines and stopped being the critics and started doing just whatever needs to be done in the work of the kingdom? It could be something like, well, I'll sign up to help with Trunk or Treat. Never done it before. Don't even like Trunk or Treat, but I'll do it because, you know what, it's a good community connection for the church. It could be something like being a youth sponsor for the youth group activities. It could be something like we've got people who sanitize the room between the services here at this Antioch campus. They come through and spray it with sanitizer between services during this time of the pandemic. We never had that as a job listed on our church website because we never thought we'd ever have to have something like that, right? Until the pandemic hit. We had people cleaning, but not doing that part. See? But when we needed somebody to do it, somebody said, yeah, I can take that on. I can do that. Just whatever needs to be done, right? We need people who are willing to be used by God, to work alongside their brothers and sisters in Christ, to put all of that together for the big job of the work of the kingdom of God so that we point people to him and bring him glory. I want to close with Hebrews chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. The author there says this to us. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That's why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they've not known my ways. So I declare on, earth, on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. How sad is that? There were a group of people that God said, if you'll listen to me and respond and don't have a hard heart, but you really do what I'm calling you to do, I'm going to lead you into a land of promise. But there were people in that group who hardened their hearts and would not listen and would not hear, would not do what God was telling them to do, and they rebelled against God, and God did not allow them into the promised land because of that. They missed their opportunity. Not what God wanted for them. God had prepared the way for them to go into that land of promise. But because of the hardness of their hearts, they missed it. They weren't able to experience it. It's not God's will that any of us would miss out. But friends, if you harden your heart, if you don't listen, if you don't respond to his call, while you have the opportunity, 
you never know how long that opportunity is going to be there. Here's the good news. Yes, you could miss the opportunity, but you don't have to. Because right now, you're here today, you're listening online, and God is calling people to him and to the work of his kingdom. So as long as you've got life and breath, what can you do? You can respond to the call. You can answer the call. You could join in with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You could become a follower of Jesus and then join in with the others in the work of the kingdom, the most important work you could ever be a part of. The saddest thing in the world would be get to the end of your life and realize you missed it. All that good that God wanted to do through you in the world, and you didn't let him. You weren't willing to be used by him to do that good that he wanted to do. See, the scripture says he prepared in advance good work for all of us to do here. What an opportunity. Don't miss it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we've been reminded by Nehemiah and him leading out in this work that you called him to, how your plan has always been for all of us to come together, to work together for the plan and the purpose you have for people all over the world. You could use us all but you want us all to respond and to work together in the work of the kingdom because that's where we can get the big things done that you've called us to do. You've prepared work for all of us in advance. Help us to respond in obedience to your call on our lives. Maybe if there's someone here today who's not yet responded, this would be the day as through your spirit you work on their hearts and you call them to you that today they would respond to that call on their lives. Father, we thank you that you can use all of us. No matter what failures we've had in the past, no matter what shortcomings are in our lives, you've always used imperfect people for the work of the kingdom because you provide what imperfect people need in your son, Jesus. And just now, Father, we come to remember the price that he was willing to pay to wash us clean and make us new to take our imperfections and remove them and clothe us with his righteousness because of his sacrifice on the cross. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.